Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to uh, utilize 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning to worship you through the study of your word. There is no form of worship more uh, significant than to learn how you think and to have our thoughts exchanged with your thoughts that we might learn to think as you think, as we may learn to evaluate life from a divine viewpoint framework. Uh, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with the things in it that we might continue to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me again to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this morning we'll summarize briefly and wrap up our study on the uh, responsibilities of the pastor-teacher. And then we'll move on to see how Paul applies that in the remainder of the chapter. Chapter has basically three divisions in it. In chapter uh, 4, 1 through 5, the main idea is that God is the only qualified judge and evaluator of a pastor's ministry. God is the only qualified judge and evaluator of a pastor's ministry. And then in verses 6 and following, the emphasis is on the dangers of arrogance and how arrogance fragments not only the individual but also but also the congregation. And then in the last uh, few verses from verse 14 on, Paul applies that to the congregation and warns them of the dangers of their continuing in arrogance. Now, as we began this study in chapter 4, three or four weeks ago, spent a lot of time talking about the pastoral ministry, the requirements of the pastoral ministry, and that's the emphasis really in the first two verses, and one of the reasons that I've spent that time uh, emphasizing the doctrine of the pastor-teacher is because so little is understood. There's been so much confusion about the doctrine of the pastor-teacher that has entered into evangelical Christianity, especially over the last 30 years. I remember when I was first a student at Dallas Seminary back in the mid-'70s that there was a sort of a new shift taking place, and many people coming out of the 60s were emphasizing uh, the spiritual gifts. It's like uh, the Jesus movement that took place at that time and with the uh, new advance of the what came to be called the charismatic movement, 
the modern charismatic movement, not the original Pentecostal movement, the early part of the century, but the modern charismatic movement, a lot of emphasis was placed on the spiritual gifts. And one of the dangers that happened during that time, I think, was the uh, that the gift of pastor-teacher was denigrated in most evangelical church. It became to be reduced in significance that the pastor gift of pastor-teacher is a spiritual gift like any other spiritual gift. And so what you saw take place in, in, and has taken place in many churches is a lessening of respect for the pastor-teacher in many churches. And that goes along with the fact that out of the uh, 60s rebelliousness, there was a loss of authority orientation. There was a reaction to anybody who was in a, took a position of authority. And this had its implications in, in the church as to how the, the uh, pastor-teacher was viewed. All of this, of course, has had terrible consequences, I think, in Christianity across the board and in, in evangelicalism as a whole. And that is in contrast to what the Scriptures teach, which is even though the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher is a spiritual gift like any other pastor, any other spiritual gift, and even though the pastor is uh, a sinner like any other believer, nevertheless, the gift of pastor-teacher, the communication gifts, apostle, prophet, pastor-teacher, and evangelist, all are authority positions within a local church, and they have a responsibility to lead and direct the local church, and somehow... We lost that. In fact, I've been more and more reminded that uh, some churches, in fact, there was a young man who uh, emailed me this last week. He'd been interviewed by a church, and it was a, an elder rural church, and in that church the pastor was under the authority of the elders. The problem with that is when you, you can't have five different visions for a local church. You have to have one man who's leading according to the direction of God, and any time you put the pastor under the authority of a group in a local church, you are eventually going to have uh, major problems. So Paul emphasizes the responsibility and the authority of the pastor or the uh, as a servant of Christ in verse 1, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So in the first verse, we talked about the responsibilities of the pastor-teacher. First of all, we saw that he is responsible as a hooper etas, an assistant to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is directed by the Lord Jesus Christ in his leadership of the local church. This is emphasized also in 1 Peter chapter 5, where he's called an under-shepherd, and he is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, not under the authority of a local board of elders or deacons. That is not the emphasis in Scripture. That doesn't mean there aren't areas of accountability to a local uh, local board or uh, or the board of deacons in a local church, but that his primary responsibility is to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, and the second point we emphasize is that he is responsible to carry out the mandates of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head of the church and sets the priorities for the local church, and the priority for the local church is to learn Bible doctrine is to exchange the human viewpoint thinking that they have absorbed and picked up uh, from the day they were born until uh, the current time, whatever that may be, whether they're saved or not. We still absorb human viewpoint thinking uh, if we're not careful. And our responsibility as a pastor-teacher, the responsibility is to teach 
the congregation the thinking of God. This is what Paul had emphasized back in the end of chapter 3, is we have the mind of Christ, and we're to quit thinking like the world thinks and start thinking like God thinks. So that's the responsibility of the pastor-teacher. It's called feeding the sheep. That's what Jesus told the apostles in John chapter 21, that we are to feed the sheep. Jesus Christ is responsible for the growth of the congregation. Jesus Christ provides the hearers. He provides the finances. And too many pastors operate on a basis of inadequacy and an inferiority complex. They're afraid that if they get in the pulpit and they just teach the word that everybody's going to disappear and that then they'll be out of a job. So rather than running the risk of financial insecurity and losing their job, they uh, compromise, All un- usually uh, under some sort of rationalization that I'll just, uh, uh, I'll just soften things up a little bit, I'll water things down, I will uh, take it down to the bottom shelf in order to get more people in, and then as uh, the church grows, I'll gradually add more. What happens is that people are usually attracted to a, that kind of a church for every other reason other than the teaching of the Word of God. They're attracted by a music program. They're attracted by a youth program. They're attracted by uh, some sort of whatever it is, age-oriented different programs, women's fellowships, camping programs, whatever it might be. That becomes the focal point of their involvement in the church, and they're not there for doctrine. And that always creates a problem because sooner or later there's going to be some issue, some controversial issue come up in the congregation, and you're going to have two sides. You're going to have a minority that has been there for doctrine and understands some doctrine, and then you're going to have another crowd that's there for the pastor's personality or they're there for the choir, the music, they're there for the children's program, and they're going to be on the other side of the issue, and you're going to end up with a fragmented congregation. So we have to make our priority the priority of Scripture, and that is the teaching of the Word of God. So the pastor-teacher we have seen is responsible to teach, explain the full counsel of God. That's what's meant by the phrase, stewards of the mysteries of God. Mysteries of God, technically in this context, has to do with the revelation of God as given in the New Testament. This is the new revelation of God related to the church age, but by extension and application, it involves the entire counsel of God, the Old Testament, because we can't really understand much of what's in the, in the New Testament unless we have a good understanding and comprehension of the Old Testament, because the framework and the frame of reference for the New Testament is the Old Testament. The second verse, we saw the requirement of a pastor-teacher. Verse 1 is responsibility. Verse 2 is requirement is to faithfully carry out that task. And I outlined that last time by saying it begins with preparation. A pastor teacher has to prepare himself through college studies, through uh, seminary studies. And if he can't uh, get up and move across the country to sit in a classroom, then he has to do it through some secondary but less effective means. And it's always important to get in a classroom, if you can, for the purpose of academic discipline. There's so many things that men who don't go to seminary miss out on in terms of training and developing their abilities to, to think, to understand the issues, developing crit- critical thinking skills. So the 
the faithfulness of a pastor teacher begins with his preparation. It continues in ongoing studies and continuing education as he con- is involved in ministry, and this can be carried out through a number of different means, going to various different conferences, reading, getting uh, tapes from different men who have specialized in different areas. It is a never-ending process. Third, the requirement of a pastor teacher is to be faithful in his own personal spiritual life and spiritual growth and fourth in the every arena of responsibility in his own life including his his marriage and his family life the point in all of this is that the pastor teacher is accountable to the lord jesus christ for his ministry for for the ministry aspect for his teaching for fulfilling those responsibilities but he's responsible to the congregation as indicated as maybe represented by a board of deacons in relationship to the fundamental qualifications of the pastor as listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1 and he is responsible for to them for maintaining sound doctrine as outlined in their doctrinal statement that's how they that's the different arenas of accountability now when i was going through this on the past on the gift of pastor teacher a couple of weeks ago somebody Put the following question up here. You stated that some men with the gift of pastor teacher can have a struggle with study. I've always thought that this was a hallmark characteristic of a pastor teacher. Can you expand on this briefly? Well, I think that's a common misunderstanding due to a misunderstanding of what the gift of pastor teacher uh, is all about. So let's have a definition of the gift of pastor teacher. The gift of pastor teacher is an enhanced ability provided at salvation by God the Holy Spirit to extract the meaning of the Scriptures through a process of study, investigation, and analysis of the Word of God and to explain its meaning so that, the, so that believers can grow spiritually and to lead a congregation towards spiritual maturity. Let me go over that again. It's an enhanced ability. What I mean by an enhanced ability is that you have a lot of people who have natural talents in teaching. Some of you may have a natural talent. We know unbelievers who can teach and explain things well, and they have the gift of gab, gift of communication, whatever it is, but it's not a spiritual gift. This is a gift that's given by the Holy Spirit, and it's an enhanced ability to communicate, and it doesn't have anything to do with natural talent. And it's amazing that you can see some people who you would not expect because of their personality or because of certain uh, flaws they might have, such as uh, I, I've even seen some, some men who, who stutter, who uh, it's difficult to listen to them. But, they have, but as soon as they get up and start teaching the Word, it's very clear they have the ability to, to make the Word come alive and to make doctrine clear. So it's this enhanced ability. It's provided at salvation. It's not a natural skill. It's provided at salvation by God, the Holy Spirit. And what's involved in this gift is the ability to extract the meaning of Scripture through a process of study, investigation, and analysis of the Word of God. Now, that doesn't come automatically. You are trained as a pastor teacher. You are trained in the skills of Bible study. It is not an automatic insight into the Scripture. Just because someone has the gift of pastor teacher doesn't mean they can just flop their Bible open and read a verse and tell you what it means. That is not what the gift means. If that's, that's a mystical distortion 
of the gift. It involves training. It involves maturity. It involves a thorough understanding of other parts of Scripture. So there, it, it's not automatic insight. It's not an automatic ability to just get into the Word, and there's no automatic desire to study. The, one of the greatest dangers to every Christian is arrogance. One of the greatest dangers in the pastoral ministry is arrogance, and one manifestation of it is laziness. I've seen laziness in the mission field. I've seen laziness in, in, in many pastors because they just don't um, have that drive to study because it's they, they don't discipline themselves to do that. That's part of their volition and part of their responsibility. And I'm continuously pushing uh, and encouraging other pastors to subscribe to journals, to go to conferences, to to be involved, constantly developing, constantly learning, constantly expanding their frame, frame of reference, and to spend time studying and reading. I have always been challenged that way myself. Uh, I remember one pastor that challenged me years ago, and I haven't done this in a while because I've been involved in some other things, but for many years I, I tried to crank out a book a week. And I don't quite do that now, but I try to at least crank through a book a month. Uh, there was another pastor who challenged me at one time, said, if you're encouraging people in your congregations to read their Bible through once a year, you know, you've got a full-time job to be a pastor. You ought to be reading it through at least five or six times a year. And so that is, for, for many years, for, at one time in my life, I was reading through the Bible every single month, and I did that for, for uh, several years. And that's important. Pastors need to discipline themselves to memorize Scripture. These things don't just happen. They have to flow from their own maturity and from their own understanding of the priorities of the pastoral ministry. And if they're not taught to do that and they don't um, discipline themselves to do that, it doesn't come automatically. But when they do it, it will enhance their ability to study the Word and then to communicate it. So the pastor still has to go through that that hard process of, making himself, and some days you get up just like anybody else. You get up in the morning, you're tired, you're, uh, you uh, may not feel well, you may be just uh, intellectually dull, but you still have to make yourself go sit in your study and read and crank through the material because uh, nobody's looking over your shoulder. It's just you and the Lord, and you have to do that. And there are men who, who after a while, they seem to... Fade out. It's interesting. I've, I've noticed, and that the same thing happens with pastors as with individuals. When you start off in your spiritual life, some of you can remember this. When you first became a believer, you were you were so intellectually curious about things. You wanted to know about this. You wanted to to understand about creation, maybe, or you wanted to understand uh, more about salvation, or you were trying to understand certain passages. Maybe it was the spiritual gifts or tongues or whatever it might be, but there were different things that, that really uh, excited you, and you wanted to know the answers to. You, you, just, you were just uh, in, uh, very curious, and so you spent a lot of time studying. And then there comes a point in your life when most of those questions are answered. And I think that's a point of shift between being a baby believer and being an adolescent believer, because during those early years, you're driven by curiosity. And then when you become an adolescent believer which is marked by developing a personal sense of your eternal destiny, that's when your motivation begins to shift from right here and now answering these driving questions to a future when you are 
beginning to be motivated by what's going to happen in eternity and realizing that the decisions you make today are going to affect things and affect your life for eternity. Well, the same thing happens with pastors. I think a lot of pastors reach a point, especially in about the middle of their career, after about 10 or 15 years, where they have a fairly good mastery of theology and the Bible. And all of a sudden, they begin to realize that 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 uh, their motivation has to shift a little bit. And things are going to be a little different from that point on, and they have to push themselves to the next level. And I've seen a lot of pastors go in, just sort of slip into neutral, and they continue to teach this, teach from that storehouse they developed during the first 10 or 15 years when they were really driven to study, and they, they just sort of stop and coast the rest of their lives. So this is just one of the dangers that pastors face. Remember, the gift of pastor-teacher isn't based on personality. And some personality types, some people just aren't as prone to uh, study as others are. So that's not necessarily part of, of the gift, Neither, just as articulateness or rhetorical skill isn't part of the gift. It's just a spiritually enhanced ability to explain the meaning so that of the Word of God, so that believers can grow spiritually. It's to take the Word of God and teach it so that people understand the mechanics, the process of spiritual growth. They understand the principles of doctrine, the principles of the spiritual life, so they can grow spiritually. And then it is a gift that enables them to lead the congregation towards spiritual maturity. It is not only a communication gift, but the concept of pastoring is also a leadership Leadership gift. Now, the biggest dangers we saw last time to the pastoral life, to the pastor, as well as to the spiritual life as a whole, is arrogance. And that is the, really the subject of the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is a, is a warning against arrogance. And there's all kinds of arrogance that enters into effect a pastor teacher. There's antinomian arrogance. There are pastors that don't think they ought to be accountable to anyone in any area. In fact, I had a pastor call me. Oh, oh, this has been eight or nine years ago, and and it's very typical. Uh, I've I've run into this in several cases where a pastor's gone through a difficult crisis with the congregation. So the next time they get a church, they want to make sure nobody can tell them what to do, and so they want to organize a church. He wanted me to get see if I knew any evidence in church history from the early church of churches where the pastor was completely autonomous and didn't have to listen to anybody. But you see, we're all under the authority of Christ, and that has to be manifested somehow. And the very fact that you have criteria for a pastor listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3 demonstrate that someone at the human level has to be exercising discernment and evaluation to see if a person is qualified by his life and spiritual maturity to be a pastor. So there's no such thing as a complete lack of human accountability. So there's also authority or arrogance where the pastor tries to extend his authority beyond the pulpit, financial arrogance where they try to fleece the sheep, academic arrogance where they uh, try to uh, or they utilize their own training, their own uh, intellectual ability, and they look down on those who ha- have not had the opportunities of training that they have. Just because somebody goes to seminary doesn't mean that they are guaranteed to be free from error or heresy any more than those who haven't been to seminary. 
but it is important if you have the spiritual gift to constantly train yourself to the fullest extent possible, always pursuing arrogance, I mean, always pursuing excellence in everything that you do as a pastor. Now, in verses 3 through 5, Paul emphasizes the fact that in light of this responsibility and requirement for the pastor, no human being has the knowledge required to perform that evaluation. Now, you can evaluate a man on the basis of the requirements in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 because that is something that is obvious and evident in a person's life. But in terms of a person's faithful teaching of the Word of God, teaching, especially teaching in, uh, in fellowship, teaching under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, that's not evident to any human being. You and I do not have the ability to even evaluate our own lives and determine what's producing gold, silver, and precious stones and what's wood, hay, and straw. We can't do that. We don't have the knowledge that only God has in order to do that. So that's the emphasis of verses 3 through 5. In verse 3, Paul says, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you. Actually, it's an idiom in the Greek, and it means it really is is insignificant that I should be judged by you. In other words, your evaluation of me, Corinthians, is not relevant. And he uses the Greek word here, anakrino. The Greek here is anakrino, and it's used... several times in this context, A-N-A-K-R-I-N-O, and it means to evaluate and to examine. It's a, and so Paul says it's really irrelevant that I should be examined or evaluated by you or by any human court, and that is really a I don't, not a very good translation. Literally, in the, in the Greek, it means uh, not a human court. The word court isn't there. It means, it, it states I, that I should be examined by you or, or, in, or a day of man, literally. A day of man, and that is a Greek idiom for public opinion, that I should be evaluated by you in the church or by public opinion as a whole in, in Greek culture, in Corinthian culture. And he goes on to say, in fact, I do not even examine myself. And he uses that same word, anacrino, again. Now, I want you, while you have your place there in 1 Corinthians 4, I want you to just slip back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14, we have the natural man, that is the unsaved man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, that is, that which doctrine that has been revealed by the Holy Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And that is our word on a crino there. And then in verse 15 he says, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged by no one. On a crino. In other words, uh, as a believer, the unbeliever cannot understand us, cannot understand the issues going on in a believer's life, and so there's nothing the unbeliever can do in terms of evaluating us, uh, the believer, and these issues have to do with uh, spiritual growth and spiritual advance, which is not discernible in this life, and Paul uses that same word, anacrino, again, 
in verse 3 of chapter 4. We can't even examine ourselves. We can go uh, to a certain extent. This is not the concept of self-examination in terms of using 1 John 1, 9, but in terms of evaluating our own life to discern which, what is going to be uh, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, chapters 1 through 4 are all one section dealing with the problems of fragmentation and division in the Corinthian church, and he has just emphasized the uh, judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 14. And now he says, I don't even evaluate myself. We can't evaluate one another on this basis because we don't have the frame of reference or the knowledge necessary. And then in verse 4 he states, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. And the Greek word translated acquitted is uh, dikaiao, which is the verb for justified, but it is not used in that technical sense of justification here. What Paul is saying in verse 4 is, I'm not aware of anything overt that's negative about my ministry. I'm not aware of anything that you can legitimately criticize me over. I'm not taking advantage of people. I'm not misrepresenting anything. I'm not engaged in, uh, in gossip. I'm not uh, engaged in any kind of false teaching or heresy. There's nothing that I can think of that is wrong with my ministry, but that doesn't acquit me. Because there are things that I don't understand. I'm not always sure when I'm in fellowship and when I'm not. Sometimes we're, we're definitely sure when we're in fellowship and when we're not. But at other times, we're, we're not so sure. We may succumb to some form of arrogance halfway through a sermon. We may get angry at somebody halfway through Bible class, and the rest of the time we're out of fellowship. It, it happens to me. We can't tell just exactly what is produced under the filling of the Spirit, and what isn't produced under the filling of the Spirit. So Paul says that, that even though I am conscious of nothing against myself, the one who examines me is the Lord. That examination only takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. And therefore he draws a conclusion in verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time. Don't get involved in judging or evaluating any pastor's ministry because you don't know what the real issues are. You don't know what's going on. It always amazes me when sometimes I hear people make critical comments about a pastor, and we have to realize that just as we want other people to treat us in grace when we're, when we're failures, when we blow it, uh, we have to treat the pastor in grace also. Every single pastor is a human being with a sin nature and flaws, and there are going to be times when that pastor teacher is going to fall flat on his face and uh, really blow it, and other times he's not. And it's always a danger to get into some form of iconoclastic arrogance. And iconoclastic arrogance is when you set up a pastor. This man means a lot to you. This man's ministry has changed your life. This man's explanation of the Scriptures has been fantastic. And all of a sudden, he does something. Maybe he says something. Maybe he uh, gets involved in some overt sin, and you are shocked. You're appalled. You can't believe that this pastor did that. And so now you react in the other direction, and you become... Uh, uh, against this man, you, you say, well, how can he be a pastor? Well, a pastor teacher is not a perfect person any more than anybody else, and we have to deal with pastors in grace. And there are times when there needs to be 
some discipline on pastors because their failure is so extreme and so overt and so obvious, and we'll get into some of that when we get into the issue of church discipline in the next uh, chapter. But for the most part, we have to recognize that, that a pastor, deal with a pastor in grace, that he he succumbs to his sin nature just like everybody else does. I'll never forget. And see, see, it's amazing. You never know what you can do and how somebody will take it. I always think of the one of the more extreme examples years ago when, when I used to work at a Christian youth camp. All of the boy counselors, all the guy counselors, we were all in college, and all of all of us hated to be at camp during a ten day older girls camp they had. And these older girls were from about uh, thirteen. To 15. And you know, if you've ever dealt with 13 and 14 year old girls, that's just a really bizarre time in the life of a, of a, of a girl. And you would be sitting there just eating your meal, totally oblivious. I mean, the, the counselors and staff all ate at a, the front part of the dining hall. And you'd just be sitting there oblivious to anything, enjoying yourself. And some girl five tables away looks at you and suddenly has a crush on you. And they just, uh, you, you have no idea what's going on. And then, you know, th- uh, the next day, you're walking across uh, cr- across the parking lot, and somebody makes some comment, and you just make an ugly face responsive to that comment, and that girl happens to be looking at you, and now she takes it personally in self-absorption, and her heart is broken. And you, completely unknown to what's going on in life, you have created a major problem for that girl's counselor. I used to, I made it a point after my first year of going through something like that is uh, I always found someplace else to be, some other part of the country to be in rather than to be there during that. And that was sort of the general feeling of most of the uh, most of the guy counselors. But see, a pastor can be that way because you're up in front of everybody all the time and people are looking at you. People know you and you don't even know somebody knows you. You're just... Uh, oblivious to the fact that that people know who you are and know your name, you're recognizable, and you do something, and somebody now gets all upset and offended, and their whole concept of Christianity goes down the tube because uh, of something you did that was uh, inadvertent. So that's iconoclastic arrogance, and everybody gets becomes a victim of it at some point or another or is uh, tempted to get involved in iconoclastic arrogance at some point. And what Paul is saying is that nobody has the right to evaluate a pastor or his spiritual life any more than anyone else has the right to evaluate anybody else's spiritual life. God, the Holy Spirit, deals with each one of us in different ways and in different manners, and we have to leave those things up to up to the Holy Spirit, and that's between the individual and the Lord. So Paul's point is, don't, I, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, the time being the judgment seat of Christ. But wait until the Lord comes. It's the Lord's responsibility to evaluate a pastor's ministry. It's not the congregation's responsibility. It's not some other believer to come to the, to the pastor. Now, I'm talking in terms of his general ministry. I'm not talking in terms of those specific areas outlined in Scripture where people are to have an evaluation. The, the pastor is to be above reproach. He's, there's certain qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and 
hepatitis 1. And as I stated before, those are minimal qualifications. There's nothing listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 with the possible exception of ability to teach that isn't to be generally expected of any maturing believer. If you get past spiritual uh, spiritual infancy, most of those things ought to be characteristic of every single believer. So it's not like the pastor is expected to be some super spiritual uh, leader who never fails. That's not the concept. But there are to- there there is to be a level of evaluation. And if he gets involved in false teaching, if he gets involved in some sort of overt sin that is bringing shame upon himself and the congregation, then that needs to be dealt with if it's a violation of those standards in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But aside from that, don't wander around evaluating somebody's ministry. Now, that's a different issue. Let me add this qualification as well. That's a different issue from evaluating the doctrine that is taught in somebody's ministry. That is different. We are called upon as believers to exercise discernment, and there are times when it is necessary to examine or evaluate what someone teaches. It's not personal. You're not evaluating them as to where they are spiritually or not, but it is important to evaluate a system of doctrine that is being taught because of its negative effect on the body of Christ. For example, I have at times evaluated teaching related to psychology and how that has come into the church or progressive dispensationalism or covenant theology, and that is a valid uh, critique, is an evaluation of a doctrinal system, but not related to a specific individual. Now, sometimes it's important to identify who teaches these things simply because sheep don't always identify who the false teacher is. I'll never forget the first time I learned this. As a young pastor, there was a book that that uh, Robert Schuller wrote called Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. And I got every pastor in the country was sent a free copy of that. And I looked at it, and it was just pure heresy. In that book, he says, you know, sin was a concept that might have been a good thing for uh, the Reformation to talk about, but that's an outdated concept now. The real problem today is people just don't have a good self-image, and Jesus died to give you a good self-image. So I, uh, I wasn't going to mention his name, and, and I knew there were a number of people in my congregation, a couple of uh, some, some of the uh, older folks in the congregation loved to watch Robert Schuller, And so I spent uh, 10 or 15 minutes just critiquing some of these things that, that he taught. And a couple of weeks later, several of these people continued to comment how great Robert Schuler was. And I began to realize that most people in the pew cannot put one and one together and come up with two. And so sometimes you have to paint the picture pretty clearly for people to realize. And then once I said, well, you identified who was teaching that, oh, now I see it. So uh, that's not an attack on him, but when you publish in the public realm a system of teaching like that, especially if you mail it around and give it to everybody, every pastor in the country, then uh, that, that falls under a different category. But in terms of personal evaluation, in terms of uh, judging, slandering, or maligning, Paul says don't get involved in judging a pastor's ministry this is something that's between him and the Lord, and the Lord will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness 
and reveals the counsels of the hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. The issue is what will take place at the judgment seat of Christ, and the Lord will make everything clear at that particular point. It's impossible before then. Now, that's the problem. He sets the principles in the first five verses related to the requirements and the responsibilities of a pastor. Now, in his case, he's an apostle, and the problem that's going on in Corinth is that they are uh, dividing themselves up and aligning themselves with different personalities and different pastors that have come their way, just as they did as unbelievers. They, They focused on personalities. They focused on people who had different intellectual skills, and so they were they were, these divisions within the congregation were uh, developed, and it involved a, probably more people because in verse 6 we read, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. You see, back in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, he had said, Well, there are some of you that say that you're of Paul, and some I am of Apollos, and others I am of Cephas, and others I am of Christ. So there were probably more groups than that, and those probably weren't the actual groups. He's just using that, figuratively speaking, in order to identify the fact that they were dividing themselves up and and aligning themselves with different uh, charismatic figures and different uh, intellectual uh, heroes in their congregation. So he says in verse 6, I figuratively transferred these things to myself and Apollos for your, your sakes, that you may learn in us, or by us actually, not to think beyond what is written. In other words, you have to stay with what the Scripture says, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Now the problem in Greek, and this is a problem that has come down and haunted Christianity ever since the early church. The problem in Greek culture was philosophy. Now, I'm going to construct sort of a pyramid diagram on the overhead because I want you to understand something about the dynamics of spiritual study and developing doctrine and how you study the Word of God. At the very foundation, you have exegesis. And exegesis is related to a particular passage. For example... 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 21. You're going to exegete, you're going to do uh, analysis on the, on the grammar and the syntax of the passage. You're going to do lexical uh, word studies, uh, under, making sure you understand the meanings of each particular word. And then in ex- exegesis, you're also going to relate it to context. And that is the immediate context of, of chapter 3 and chapter 5, and then the greater context of 1 Corinthians and the greater context of the New Testament and then the greater context of the whole. So you're going from exegesis where you're doing a detailed analysis, and then the next step is that you begin to build a, a, a synthesis. You begin to identify various uh, categories. And as you develop these various categories that are being taught in the passage, then you start comparing those with other scripture. This leads to a third level, which is uh, biblical, what we'll call biblical theology. Now, what I mean by biblical theology, it's a technical term. It doesn't mean theology that is biblical versus theology that is 
not biblical, like Hindu theology or Buddhist theology. Biblical theology has to do with the fact that, that as you develop your, your understanding of, of theology, you're first of all going to look at certain words and see how Paul uses that terminology. Then you're going to, you may look at, if you're studying in First uh, John, you're going to have an understanding of how John uses the terminology. And then you may have, be studying Peter, and you're going to study how Peter uses the terminology, because uh, the Holy Spirit may, may uh, the Holy Spirit definitely inspires the Word of God, but each author writes within his own style and his own personality. So there are certain distinctions. Well, after you do your biblical theology, which is identifying, you know, Paul's terminology, John's terminology, Peter's terminology, or Matthew's, then you go to the next step, which is the crowning achievement, which is your systematic theology, and that then comes back and helps with your your exegesis. Now, the danger is that when systematic theology becomes so abstract that it cuts itself loose like a balloon cut loose from the ground or like a ship cut loose from its anchor where systematic theology starts to free float. And that systematic theology then becomes an absolute in itself and in, and you, you've developed a hardened, calcified systematic theology and then you read that back into your passage. See, that's what happened after the Reformation. That's what happened in Calvinism. That's what happened in Lutheranism. Uh, in Lutheran theology, rather than continuing to d- develop in their understanding of the Scriptures, things hardened into various creeds that were written in the 16th century, and that those creeds then become the way in which the Bible is interpreted. And the issue is no longer what does the Bible say. The issue is what does the theological system teach, and then that then determines how you interpret various passages. And this is because in, historically you had this impact of Greek philosophy on the early church. And the tendency in Greek philosophy is to get theology and abstract it where you separate it from its grounding in the Word. That's why I try to emphasize, for those of you who are prep school teachers, try to emphasize that when you teach principles of doctrine always grounded in a biblical event and a biblical situation. When God taught about sin, he just didn't start talking about sin in sort of an abstract manner. You don't find God, you don't find the scriptures start off with a definition of sin and then this abstract development that of, of the different categories of sin like you would do in a systematic theology and sometimes I do when I'm categorizing things because I've already gone through this process of going from exegesis, categories, biblical theology to systematic theology and in that process I'm, I don't cut loose, and I come back, and it's a constant check and balance between exegesis and, and systematics. But what happens when you cut it loose, you just start talking about sin or salvation, completely divorced from Scripture, and that's when you start getting into problems. For example, a classic example of this is five-point Calvinism. In five-point Calvinism, you have the acronym TULIP. T is for total depravity. Un, the U is for unconditional election. The L is for limited atonement. The I is for irresistible grace. And the P is for perseverance. This put, you put TULIP together, the five points of Calvinism, and it is logically coherent. It relates. It's a great system. Trouble is, it's not biblical. 
Why? Because once they developed exegesis and they went up this this process to systematic theology, and they developed a concept of sin and total depravity. That's your theological category. But when they defined it, they defined it in ways, and they brought uh, they brought stuff into the definition that went beyond biblical exegesis. So now that you've defined total depravity in a way that goes beyond the Bible, you start extrapolating from that into these other areas. But if the, your definition of total depravity is wrong, everything else from unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance falls apart because you've built an abstract theology. It may make sense. It may be coherent. It may be uh, intellectually satisfying. But it's no longer grounded in sound biblical exegesis. So everything has to come back to the text and not just proof texting. See, you'll often find you read any book on Calvinism, they'll give you 25 or 50 or 100 verses to support each point. But you have to go back and look at those verses in context. Do those verses really teach that? or Do they really say that? Or have they just put these verses together and then extrapolated to something, to some conclusion in an illegitimate manner? And so you can't get away from what the text says. And this is something that happened in Greek culture is that they were they they got away and they got into philosophy greek philosophy and they were developing theology completely apart from what was written in the text so paul says that you may learn by us not to think beyond what is written now what do you do with things like the trinity and the rapture and some other things like that that aren't specifically stated in scripture well that's simple We'll just use the Trinity as an example. The word Trinity isn't in the Scripture, so somebody might come along and say, well, Trinity is just another example of how Greek philosophy affected uh, biblical understanding. In fact, you'll hear that from a Jehovah's Witness. Here's the difference. The difference is that the Bible teaches, let's say, premise one, that premise one is that the Father is God. Premise two is that the Holy Spirit is God. And premise three is that the Son is God. Premise four is the Bible teaches that God is one. Now, and premise five is that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So if the Bible doesn't contradict itself, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each fully divine and they are also one, then we have, we can come to the conclusion that God is many, that is three, and God is one. But he is not one and the many at the same time. What you have done is you've looked at the Scripture, and the Scripture teaches these three points, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And then there's another point, and that is that God is one. Then you take these these premises and you come to a second level where you develop a, let me make that a bigger square, you develop the concept of three and one. That's a theological conclusion. As long as your premises are biblically sound, 
When you put them together, this is a law of logic. Whenever premise one is true and premise two is true, then the conclusion based on premise one and two is also true. Even though the scripture doesn't state premise, the conclusion, if the premises are true, the conclusion is true. Now you can even go further than that and you can take uh, several different conclusions and if they're all based on clear, on accurate premises, then you can take two of those conclusions and you can go to a third level of conclusion. And that's also true because if this is true and if, if conclusion one is true and conclusion two is true, then conclusion three is also going to be true. But what happens now is if you cut the process and conclusion three starts to free float as an abstract principle, and you start comparing it just logically, well, if this is true, then this must also be true, and that must also be true. That's where you start getting into trouble, and you get away from the Scriptures. And that's exactly what happened in the early church, and too much early theology was impacted by uh, the problem that, that Paul points up here is they went beyond what was written. Verse 7, Paul says, For who makes you differ, or excuse me, at the conclusion of verse 6, he states that you may learn by us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. And the Greek word translated puffed up is the verb fusiao, and it means to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, to, to be bloated, to be uh, puffed up with air to think that you have come up with things that you haven't. This is the idea of generating theology that goes far beyond anything that you can demonstrate uh, through the text. And this is apparently what they were beginning to do, and it was leading them into all kinds of areas where they were becoming intellectually impressed with themselves because of what they were coming up with uh, about, about Scripture. And remember, they didn't even have a completed canon. So Paul brings them back to reality with three questions in verse 7. First of all, and all three of these questions are to bring them back to recognizing that God is the source of everything, that we must have a theocentric view of life, a God-centered view of life. He says, first of all, who makes you different? See, everybody's different. Some people have one talent, other people have another talent, some people are smarter, some people aren't. But we are all sinners and we're all equally obnoxious to God. It doesn't matter how physically attractive one person is over against another. It doesn't matter how wealthy one person is over against another or how educated. When it comes to our standing before God, which is the only thing that ultimately matters, we are all sinners and equally obnoxious to God. Any positive differences in us, whether it's intellectual, whether it's material, whether it has to do with talents or gifts, are all due to God's grace. At salvation, the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts to us, and throughout life, God's grace distributes different blessings to everyone. Everyone is different, and the, the positive differences are due to the grace of God, and the negative differences are due to our own failures following our own sin nature. So the first question is designed to focus their attention on who the ultimate source of all of their positive blessings are, and that's God. Who makes you differ one from another? Second, and what do you have that you did not receive? 
See, the emphasis here is that don't boast in all of these things that you think you accomplished. It was God who gave you the ability and God who gave you that accomplishment. It's always interesting as pastors. I was, in fact, I was thinking about this the other day. There are probably many pastors of small churches, not unlike Preston City Bible Church around the country, who are faithfully teaching the Word of God. But they, they haven't been taken by God into some level of any kind of national prominence. In fact, what you find usually is the people who are at some level of national prominence have been involved in a lot of self-promotion, and they've been out there building their own ministry, and it's not God's ministry. And just because you never heard of a pastor, you know, Bill Smith in some small town doesn't mean he isn't extremely faithful in teaching the Word of God and extremely sound in his theology uh, just because he hasn't written a number of books, just because he hasn't got a, a doctorate by his name or anything like that, doesn't mean that he isn't also very sound and very faithful in carrying out the responsibility that God has given him. So we have to recognize that everything that we have was given to us by God. And then the third question, he, which is really his conclusion, if you didn't receive it, if it didn't, if you didn't generate that difference on your own, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why are you bragging about it? That's what the word means, kalkaomai. It means to brag about it. Why are you bragging about it, making an issue out of it, as if, if you didn't have anything to do with it in the first place? In other words, he's emphasizing the fact that they have completely failed at grace orientation. Grace orientation means that everything we have has been given to us by God, and when we rec- only when we recognize that can we have genuine humility. And then in verse 8, Paul uses a little sanctified sarcasm. Now, some people have a problem with this, but, but Paul drives the point home through, through sarcasm. It's a very effective tool, and it's a legitimate rhetorical device. It's listed in any uh, list of figures of speech. He is trying to shame them uh, by his tone. He says, oh, I remember, you are already full. In other words, you have it all. See, that was their claim. They had it all. They were, they were filled. They had everything. They had been given more than anybody else, and they were bragging about it. He says, you're full. You are already rich. You have become kings without us. That's right. You don't really need us. You don't need our teaching. You're, you all are so smart, and you've got everything figured out that, that you are far beyond anything that we could do for you. And Paul goes on to say, I would indeed, this is where he stops the sarcasm. He said, I would indeed that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. In other words, you haven't become kings because, as we're going to see, they had so failed in their spiritual life that their inheritance in the kingdom was in jeopardy. And, in fact, they would never reign with Paul or anyone else in the kingdom. So Paul says, you you have uh, claim to be filled, you've claimed to be rich, and you've claimed to be kings without us, but unfortunately, that's not true at all. And then he comes back to emphasizing the truth in verse 9, and the truth is really the conflict of values between human viewpoint thinking and divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint puts its emphasis on intellectual ability. Human viewpoint thinking puts its emphasis on material gain, on education. Human viewpoint thinking puts its emphasis on on fame, on all of the overt signs of success. 
But divine viewpoint puts its emphasis on character, and it's a character developed on humility. See, the contrast here in this chapter is arrogance versus humility. In Satan's systems, remember, Satan is the architect of all human viewpoint thinking and our what we call cosmic thinking. And what God is demonstrating in the angelic conflict is the only way that the creature can have success is through genuine humility and grace orientation, authority orientation to God and reliance upon his grace. Whereas Satan, the creature, is saying, no, look, the the way to have real success is for the creature to promote himself and the creature to run everything independently of God. And that's the essence of arrogance. Divine viewpoint, the emphasis is humility and dependence upon God in everything. And so the, the, the trappings of success that human viewpoint promotes are going to be just the opposite of the trappings of success that divine viewpoint promotes. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. It says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. That is not last in time, but last in the sense of priority. We are, in terms of human viewpoint values, the least significant. We are exhibited as men condemned to death. We, we are under a death sentence. We're constantly being persecuted. Paul himself had been left for dead on a couple of different occasions. It says, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Why were they a spectacle to angels and to men? To demonstrate the principle in the angelic conflict that it is only when the creature develops humility, grace orientation, and dependence upon God that he can have real success. And real success is defined in terms of character and that which endures throughout eternity. So he is emphasizing the fact that God is teaching values that are 180 degrees opposite from the satanic values of the cosmic system. So in verse 10, Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. Not that they were in actuality fools, but that they were in the light of the value system of human viewpoint. They were fools. They were not emphasizing the things that the culture said should be emphasized. So he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but we, but you are prudent in Christ. And in other words, they were making the claim that they were really the wise ones. We are weak, Paul says, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And so he is emphasizing this contrast that the Corinthians were, were developing everything in light of the value system of the culture and what the apostles were were insignificant in terms of the value system of the culture. Verse 11, he says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. See, this isn't what you want, is it? But most of us in life are not saying, you know what, when I reach spiritual maturity, I want to be homeless. I don't want to have any possessions other than what's on my back. I, uh, I want to have a a 401k plan that is empty. Uh, I don't want to even have a car. I just want to have a bicycle. Those are the things that we're all striving for, aren't they? Well, Paul says, to this hour we're both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated. We're homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. See, this is humility because they have, de- they have transformed their humility and grace orientation into real impersonal love for all mankind. We, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, 
we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have, we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. But even though they are rejected by man, their character demonstrates that they are exhibiting the character of Christ. And then in verses 14 to 21, Paul is going to warn them against the arrogance because of its fragmentary consequences. And he is writing to rebuke them. Verse 14, he says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to warn you. In other words, real humility is going to respond to criticism by saying, well, that's true. There's something valid there. I'm going to learn from this, and I'm going to go through the corrective procedure. The person who is arrogant is going to react. The person who is arrogant is going to say immediately say, well, that's not true. The person who is arrogant is going to be hostile whenever he is met with any kind of constructive criticism. Paul says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to warn you. Warn you, why? Because of the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 15, for though you might have 10,000 instructors, notice the hyperbole here. Paul uses exaggeration. It's not that they actually have 10,000 instructors, but he says no matter how many instructors, no matter how wonderful you think your teachers might be, yet you don't have many fathers. And that is those who are genuinely responsible for your spiritual welfare. See, he's saying that these false teachers, they may be promoting their own systems. They may be great teachers. They may give you great intellectual thrills and entertainment, but they're not really concerned about your spiritual welfare as I am. He was their spiritual father. That's his point in the last part of the verse. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. In what way? Were they to imitate Paul in being a tent maker? No. Were they to imitate Paul in terms of his diet? No. Were they to imitate Paul in terms of how he dressed? No. Were they to imitate Paul in terms of his personality? No. They were to imitate Paul in terms of what? Grace orientation and humility. Because that's the subject of the, and that is the character of Christ. So when we come to these passages in Scripture where it talks, Paul says, imitate me, and he does this many times, that is a spiritually mature believer talking to those in his congregation that they need to imitate the character of Christ that has been formed in them already. And then he explains in verse 17, for this reason, that is so you can learn to imitate me and understand the the divine viewpoint values that energize me, says, for this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son. Notice faithful, what's required of a steward? That they be found faithful. Timothy is a faithful steward of the word. He is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. So they need to be reminded again and again of the values of, of divine viewpoint. And then the warning in verse 18 and 19 against arrogance. Now, some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. You think that because I'm not coming back, you can start running the congregation teaching whatever you want. But he says in verse 19, I will come to you shortly. You know, don't think you're going to get away with it because I will confront you when I come in person. I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, But the power, we're going to be able to determine whether the power comes from your own sin nature or from the Holy Spirit. 
For the kingdom of God, he says, is not in word. It's not rhetoric, a rhetorical ability. It's not intellectual skill. It's not the ability to think through uh, difficult theology, but it's power. That is the power of God, the Holy Spirit. It is the spiritual power that produces real spiritual growth and spiritual maturity that produces the fruit of the Spirit exemplified as the character of Christ. And then his final warning in verse 21, What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod that is in discipline or in love and a spirit of gentleness? It was up to them. It was their decision as to how Paul would come to them as to whether they would apply doctrine and respond to his correction or not. Well, that ends chapter 4, which is the first section of the epistle which deals with the problem of divisions and intellectual arrogance in the congregation. Starting in, ver- in chapter 5, we're going to deal with a, start dealing with a whole new problem. And in chapters 5 and 6, we're going to get into some really interesting uh, studies. And we'll begin that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to understand these things, to be warned against arrogance and to realize how subtle arrogance is, that, that it can not only take the form of overt bragging as it did in, in Corinth, but also in uh, the more subtle forms of, uh, of self-denial and self-pity and pseudo-humility. Father, we pray that you would give us this discernment to recognize arrogance in our own lives, that we may apply your word uh, to those areas and deal with them under the uh, both the principle of confession of sin in 1 John 1, 9, and in terms of applying doctrine to those issues in our own lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without uh, a certainty of their eternal life, that they would recognize that the issue for them is a greater issue of arrogance, and that is do they think they can uh, somehow impress you with their own works and their own ability to get into heaven? And the scriptures make it clear that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves, that we are born spiritually dead, we are born unable and incapable of saving ourselves, but that you in your love provided the perfect solution in Jesus Christ. And that demands humility on our part to recognize that it's not up to me in any way whatsoever, it's up to Jesus Christ. He paid the price in full, so all we have to do is accept that free gift to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. So if you are uncertain of your eternal life, unsure of your eternal destiny, right now, right where you sit, you can make that sure and certain by simply putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and challenge us with them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.